Hello, I'm Neil Moody, editorial hairstylist, YouTuber, Instagrammer, Facebooker, interviewer, etc. And welcome to the second series of my In Bed with Neil Moody podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to be notified about all new episodes. In series one, I interviewed friends and work colleagues from the fashion and beauty industry who are entrepreneurial and also think outside of the box. In series two, I'm expanding outside of my industry a little more and I'm subtitling this series, Turning a Corner. While some of my guests are still people in my industry, there will be others featured who I've met through my more recent conversations about mental health. Everybody I'm interviewing this time around either chose, were encouraged or forced to turn a different corner in their lives. This episode forms the first part of a special trilogy featuring the escapades of the amazing Francesca Sorrenti. Francesca and I are also joined on this trilogy by our dear friend Carl Pluka, stylist and editor of Beauty Papers magazine, who I invited to join me to do the interview. This special trilogy of interviews, Carl and I have chosen to call The Godmother. Like Mario Puzzo's fictional Sicilian-American family of the Godfather series, the Sorrentis are to fashion what the Corleones were to organise crime. It all began with a girl from Brooklyn called Francesca, whose epic story commences in the vibrant music scene of Manhattan in the late 60s. Fran, as she's known to her friends, later gave birth to Mario, now a legendary fashion photographer, Vanina, a stylist and photographic artist, and the late David, a searingly brilliant young photographer whose untimely death in February 1997 has led Fran to campaign for the protection and treatment of young people in the fashion industry. Now, a recent documentary, book and exhibition of David's work has received critical acclaim, and as the Sorrenti dynasty reaches its third generation, as Mario's photographer daughter Grey's star begins to ascend, now seems like the perfect time to hear Fran's story from the beginning, and it is a blockbuster of the Godfather proportions. So sit down, get comfortable, and enjoy part one. Hi Fran, hi Carl. Hi guys. <laughs> Hi guys. <laughs> Carl and I are in London and Francesca is in New York and this is the first one I've ever done over the internet so it's quite exciting. Fran, let's get straight to it. I want to know where did you grow up because I don't really know. I grew up in Brooklyn then we moved to Florida when I was eight, moved mm. back to New York after a year, moved to Brooklyn and then when I was 11 we moved to Bell Harbor, which is a, in Queens, New York, but it's on the beach, and it's a lovely suburban area. And then when I turned 18, I ran away from home <laughs> and ran to Manhattan. Right. And, and that was always my dream as a child. Live, you know, Every time I'd cross that Brooklyn Bridge, I, mm. I even as a six-year-old, I said, that's where I'm going to live when yeah. I am old enough. Basically, I lived, every summer we would go to Italy uh, because my mother and my stepdad were both uh, from Italy. Uh, my stepdad was from Genoa and my mom was from Naples. So we'd spend uh, 20 days in Genoa and then another month in Naples. Uh, not the whole time in Naples, but we would go to like Ischia and Capri or Positano. And when we were in Genoa, we would go to Santa Margarita. It was great. It was really great. And then I met my uh, ex-husband, 
and uh, moved to Naples in uh, 71. So he was the reason you moved there? Yes. And yeah. I lived so there you moved till... to, when you when you moved to New York, Fran, when you were eighteen, what did you do when you arrived in New York for for a job? Ah, this is X rated. Mm. <laughs> there we go. Mm. Well, my dearest uh, friend was a groupie, crazy girl named Paula. I went to stay with her, and she was at the time seeing one of the uh, Jefferson Airplane, Marty. Um, my relationship with her lasted three days because she was really crazy. And <laughs> and then I sort of hip-hopped around. Well, you have to understand, it was a different time. It was 1967. New York, uh, especially at night, was deserted for except for a couple of clubs, 42nd Street and Broadway. And, and mainly a lot of young people lived on the Upper East Side, um, yeah. and there there was no Soho, there was no Tribeca. Um, it was, was it scary. You know what? It in a way it was, and in another way, being so young, you really didn't see it. You know, because you think you're infallible. Uh, yeah. But it was very empty. I mean, you know, uh, those infamous pictures of everybody running to the subway at five o'clock. Believe it or not people work till five <laughs> and, and not nine at night and midnight <laughs> so what was the what was the Fra- francesca in 1967 working what were you looking what, were you, what was your look well what was my look you know where this was the height of for me mod mm-hmm. so it's a lot of makeup great haircut vintage clothing mixed in with a lot of mini skirts and being very cool and I hung out at this club called The Scene. It was a place where all the groups would go to just to hang out uh, after their gigs and back then gigs were in small nightclubs or I mean the only ones who really had the major gig back then was the Beatles. You know they would perform in stadiums but the majority of the bands would perform in these large clubs out on the island. Uh, one of the places was called the Action House. I got a job there. I got a job. Uh, the club was downstairs, and it was very cave-like as back then. You know, clubs were pretty much down in the basement. Yeah, yeah you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, you, these brick walls that one hole went into another. But the scene was very famous. It was where groups came to introduce themselves to record producers on, I think it was Tuesday or Thursday. You would see uh, these groups play. They would play practically every night because there was really no such thing as DJing. So it was records, and you would dance on this tiny dance floor. But it was like a speakeasy, let's put it that way. And then there was a bar, and I can't remember one famous group were the bartenders, and I can't remember. They sang that song, Up, Up, and Away, in my beautiful balloon. Oh, yes. Yeah, and I remember they uh, had their... I, I can sing it. Like, I my beautiful, my You're not getting me balloon. to sing anything. <laughs> um, this is so interesting, because I don't ever associate, like, New York with the mod look. I always think of London's, but, I, but obviously it was happening there as well. Which is really interesting. Yes, and there were a couple of really great clubs. There was Salvation One, 
I worked there too. You would see a girl who hung out there all the time was Liza Minnelli. And Peter, I can't remember her husband's last name, her ex-husband, well, he passed away, Peter Allen. You know, we were all young and there was a lot of people within the scene and whatnot. And then we went to this after-hour club called The Sewer. A lot of times, uh, then there was, right after the whole music, my thing with the music scene and hanging out with groups and knowing a lot of them. You'd be upstairs, the Beatles would walk in, uh, but... It was different then. We were all kids, and I was close also with Jimi Hendrix at the time. I had met him in front of the club with a friend, and she said, let me introduce you to Jimi. Hi, Jimi. Little did he know that I was such a (laughs) fan. (laughs) But it was a time when not everybody knew. You know, you have to understand that a lot of parents were still freaking out about their kids you know, liking this weird music, dressing in this weird way, making yeah. their hair grow. It, it was a very, um, excuse me, a very unusual time. A lot of parents were literally freaking out. They were either having their children committed to find out what was wrong with them, <laughs> you know, and the drug scene wasn't as crazy as one would think. There were pills, though. There was the uppers and the downers. You know, uh, the downers made you feel sexy and the uppers made you continue going. My drug person, there was acid too. That sounds great. (laughs) Uh, I didn't drink. I really didn't like weed because I was, I just needed to be in control. You know, I'm very much a control freak. So yeah, I would have a huff and a puff. Coke wasn't in the picture. You know, Coke and heroin. <laughs> Coke and heroin was not part of this group. But it wasn't it but wasn't it about dancing a lot? Isn't that why the uppers were there to keep you dancing in the club? Well, that was my drug. Mm-hmm. I had to dance. So I would work to dance. So I would find a job, uh, whether in a boutique, it'd last a week, I'd get my paycheck <laughs> and then another week to spend it. Uh, then I'd find another job, maybe uh, doing coat check. I remember once a friend of mine was sick and asked if I could do coat check. And you have to understand the clubs back then were very run by the mafia, even the hippest, coolest clubs. And you would get there and you would see them coming, actually, because they literally did wear the trench coat and they did oh, have really? suits. Oh, really? had the full look? Yeah, they had suit and ties and trench coats. <laughs> And the hat. Wow. And then they I had... I myself. <laughs> it, it, so it was just like the Godfather. You know, it was very interesting because the majority of their girlfriends were Irish. And they were Italian. They would come They would come in and there would always be the table to the side that said reserved. That was front row. And I remember a friend of mine was sick once and she said, you know, do you want to do coat check? for me. And I said, sure. When these guys came in, the first one who came in, I can't remember his name. He's, he said, and who are you? And I said, my name is Francesca. And he goes, you're Italian? What's an Italian girl doing in New York in this time? You need to be home. <laughs> I said, well, I'm not home. He said to me, okay, I want you to watch my hat for me and my girlfriend's fur coat. And her name was Maureen, I remember, because we became friendly and all of a sudden, there were other guys who came, and he must have been the head or something. And he said, this is Francesca, 
you give her a tip, you treat her with respect. She's Italian. And then he looked over at the manager. He said, you do not touch her tips tonight because I always had to share my tips with him. And he said, if you touch her tips, you're going to be in big trouble. (laughs) (laughs) So I walked out that night. The Dear Mafia Boys gave me $900 in tips in 1967. (laughs) Which back then was so much money. I mean, I I was getting... I was out of commission. I didn't go to work for a month. Um, But I worked in clubs. I worked in another club, Salvation. And then I remember one day we met the Beatles. Um, A friend of mine who was friends with Brian Epstein, she said, let's wait for them. And then the car pulled over and they called her over. So I remember jumping into the Rolls Royce in front of the, the Ritz. In the back seat was George, Paul, and uh, Ringo. It's funny because I never was starstruck. I mean, I admired uh, celebrities or singers for their talent. And, you know, in a way I was like, this is the Beatles, but I wasn't like, oh my God, it's the Beatles. I've never had that kind of personality. And then I guess from working in clubs prior to this meeting, I knew a lot of guys, you know, um, I had a boyfriend who was in a band. Uh, I knew other guys in bands. <laughs> so you weren't phased, really, were you? By, what? By I wasn't phased. phased. No, no, no. It was, uh, you know, when they told me their names, I said, really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, they invited us to go to the Salvation 2 that night, which was this fabulous club where you name it was in there. You know, Faye Dunaway, Peggy Moffat, gangsters. <laughs> I remember my girlfriend really wanted to hang out with Paul that night. So we got all dressed up and everything, and we ran to the club. You know, it's one of those clubs with the little door and, you know, with the little... Hat. Oh, with the little letterbox. Yes, seat. and they, yeah. they knew me, so... And I remember... Did you leave her outside? <laughs> no, but when we get there, the club had... It was amazing. It was very space-like. It was all white, and it had a middle dance floor, and then with an arena around it. And then it had this restaurant that was all glass, which you couldn't hear what was going on on the outside, but you could see. That was in Sheridan Square. And I remember going in and and we're looking for, well, she's looking for Paul. And uh, she found out that he had left with Linda. Oh. I wonder if Mary's listening to this podcast. (laughs) Well, if she is, (laughs) I mean, I know that they already knew each other, but they left together. But what I know that that was what solidified their relationship. Right. Um, was your friend gutted? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> she said, the outfit for nothing. I went out and I bought this outfit and it was for nothing. Oh, by the way, the guy who was the manager of that other club, Salvation One, ended up falling out of a window a couple of months later. So falling? Yeah. <laughs> I, I I really want to talk about the gay scene in New York mm. at the time. Yeah. It was very trisexual, let's put it that way. A lot of young boys. You know, you have to understand there were no role models. 
it was against the law. There was a club called Top of the Town. I forgot to mention that a lot of the clubs back then were actually in a in buildings on the top floor. Right. Which you were usually invited to go to with your gay friends in case the cops showed up. So downstairs, when the cops showed up, the the person watching the building would call and say, they're coming up. So, oh, together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now, and there was still slow music, you know, and all of a sudden you're dancing slow with your gay friend. <laughs> and then there was this tinkle of pills that you would hear fall on the floor. And when they usually came, they did break it up. They would say, okay, everybody home now. Mm. Oh, really? So they kind of knew what was happening, I guess. Really. Well, yeah, they knew what was happening, and they were always... They they looked just like the mafia guys, to tell you the truth. Suit and, <laughs> suit and trench coats. And, and then I remember one particular evening in uh, 67, I think it was, that I was at the Stonewall with a friend who uh, happened to be Judy Garland's hairdresser. He He did hair. Lenny, that was his name. I went with Lenny, and he uh, met a friend who was with also a girl, and we started talking, and she was a Playboy bunny. We started talking, and she said, you know, you should be a bunny. And I said, oh, really? You know, it's not for me. (laughs) And she said, no, no, you just, you know, you could do the restaurant. You could do lunchtime at the restaurant, and it's very cool. You just put on the outfit, and, you know, and you make a lot of money and tips. So she said, let's talk about it. So we walk out and we go around the block (laughs) and we're talking maybe half an hour. And when we come back, shit hit the fan. And that's when they raided Stonewall. Oh my God, that was the riot. That was the riot. riot. Wow, that's history. And my friend Lenny was in the back of a, you know, those trucks or whatever, police van. Come and get me out of jail. Get bail money. (laughs) What was so, the name of the drag queen that, that threw the first punch? Oh, I don't remember. But, you know, we were there. We were not inside. You know, we were frightened. You know, we didn't want to get pulled into the van. Yeah. Uh, so we were across the street by the park, basically crying. So that, it, it was very interesting because at the time I was also friends with Joel Schumacher, mm. who at the time worked for Paraphernalia and now is, um, you know, a famous movie producer. Did you work in a store with him? Well, I worked, yes, because he at one point went to work at Henry Bendel's. Right. And I went to see him, and he gave me a job. I didn't like it. So after a month, I left because uh, you have to understand I was a woman. It's 1968 or 69. I can't remember the date. If a guy said to you, you do this, don't talk to that person, you you would be like, this is not cool. I don't like it. You know, I've always, you know, there's this Me Too movement right now. And I, I, I bless the fact that I had this personality where when I was approached to do something, I would like, fuck off. Yeah. You know? <laughs> And I'd get fired, and uh, so be it. I didn't care, you know, because it was very easy to work back then, especially if you were an attractive girl, you know, and you made good money. You didn't, it's not like today where, 
if there, if even if you were making minimum wage, you could survive. And there were enough friends to let you crash at their pads. And, and there, back then, you know, you could find a place to live for a month. There are a lot of um, residential hotels. A lot of the groups stayed at the Gotham and on, it was, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was 55th Street off of 5th Avenue where the majority of these small hotels were where the groups would stay. And there there was always some place to stay, a friend's house, a socialite's house, or um, a loft. So where were you living, Fran? Whereabouts were you? Well, I was hopping all over the place because, right. <laughs> you know... Uh, Wherever you felt like at the time. Yeah, you know, I'd meet somebody and they'd say, come and stay with me. And do you have a place to stay? No. Well, you can live with me. I was living everywhere from 14th Street in an apartment building there with a friend, a loft on 16th Street, uh, an apartment on East 78th Street. There was always a place to live for a girl. There's a lot of camaraderie for a, you know, in the youth movement. Yeah. You chip in, you know, 50 bucks for rent. You know, you could, you could stay there. Used to be the like a, like a squat. No, because I used to stay at uh, this residential hotel on Gramercy Park South. You could get a one bedroom with a kitchen. Beautiful, I'd have to say, except for the roach problem in New York City back then. <laughs> I mean, there were roaches everywhere. And it was a really... I'm sure you stayed at the Gramercy Park Hotel, one of you. I did. I did, mm. you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah so it was times. pretty much the Gramercy Park Hotel, you know. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. That kind of vibe. And when you're young, that's a very cool vibe, you know. Yeah. yeah. And a place like that would cost $100 a week. And you'd share it with a roommate, you know, 50 bucks each. And I remember one job that I had, I needed a job really fast. And there used to be agencies you could walk into. I mean, we I've done the weirdest jobs. Once, <laughs> once me and my friend, we did a job walking dogs. I mean, here's these two, let's say, very cool fashionable girls wearing big earrings, tons of makeup, Sassoon haircuts. We decided that walking dogs was very profitable. We put on our jeans, plaid shirts. We said we were from upstate New York and we got the job and it paid. Well, you didn't walk just one dog. You had to walk a couple, but it paid $25 an hour for walking five dogs at a time. So we were, we said, we're strong, we're farmers' daughters. <laughs> and I remember it was so boring. And me and my friend Susan, we decided to go visit Videl Sassoon, who was still at the time in his uh, store. Yeah. And we locked the door, dogs in the closet. <laughs> and a couple of weeks later, there was pregnant dog. Oh. And we got fired. Oh, I see. Oh, oh you left them in the closet. No, they got pregnant. They, they... In the closet. They got pregnant. Oh, in the closet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I see what you mean. I thought you meant you left them in the closet for a couple of weeks. And then they... <laughs> so, no, no, no. No, but they just had a bit of frisky They had fun. a little fun in the clo- closed quarters. <laughs> I left out Max's Kansas City, which was the big hangout when I decided to leave the music, 
I went into the fashion end of it. I became friendly with uh, Donna Jordan and Jane Forth and uh, a, a lot obsessed. of... What? what? I'm obsessed with them. <laughs> yeah. And we were young. They, they yeah. were kids. We were kids. I was a kid too. Jane Forth did the most oh, interesting. She did the interesting makeup. With yeah, she had those eyebrows. little tiny eyebrows. Little oh, I know. Right, she right. was so good. Donna was the bleach blonde. Mm. Yes, yeah. we had a lot of fun. We'd go, and they worked a lot with with Antonio Lopez. And I remember then there was Karl Lagerfeld. Also, was a young guy. It was really great because you know we'd all hang out together and. Uh, at the door upstairs, because downstairs was the restaurant. It, mm. it was located between 17th and 18th Street on Park Avenue South. Mm. And Andy would be there a lot. Uh, but actually, I had met Andy at the scene the year before. This is Andy Warhol, just yeah, for anybody and, that's yes. listening. Yeah. <laughs> Andy Warhol. It was really funny because I didn't know who he was. There was blue light, you know, that horrible blue light where you could see all the lint. And he was leaning against the wall. He had a red and white striped shirt and blue jeans, and his zipper was down, and his white underwear was glowing. And I just went up to him, and I said, you know, I don't know if you know this, but your underwear is showing. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I met him. And I was also good friends with Geraldine. Well, not that good friends, but Geraldine and her sister Maria. They were the Smith sisters. I remember Andy once saying to me, you know, if you want to be in the trash movie, that would be great. You just have to be without your top. You know, I, I was skinny then, but I did have tits. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember saying to him, he paid $25 a day, which I said, I'm not taking my top off for $25. <laughs> I would have done it if it was Joe D'Alessandro in the room. Well, let me get to that in a Hello. second. <laughs> uh, and uh, he wanted me to sit on this bed naked. And I said, not happening. I said, you know, one day I'm going to have children. And that's how that ended. Little did I know that I gave, you know, my kids were like really upset that I didn't do it. You know, yes. yeah. Maria goes, Ma! And I said, okay, I gave birth to Pervin. The benefit of hindsight, that's cool. Yeah. And then Joe D'Alessandra. Okay, going back to Max's Kansas City, um, upstairs was sort of like this club space where they would play music and whatnot. Joe D'Alessandro and Don Johnson were the door kids. They were wow. so hot. Because <laughs> you have to understand they were in their early 20s. And Don Johnson was to die over in his early yeah, 20s. Yeah. And so was Joe. I mean, one was more hippie-ish and one was more, I don't know, very handsome. And they were so full of themselves because they knew they were handsome. And then we'd have to pay, well, I didn't have to, a lot of people had to pay five bucks to get in. That was an enormous amount of money back then. So much of that life that might seem so glamorous and, oh man, you are so lucky that you live this. But at the time, you didn't know, you know. And uh, at this point, I was living with my friend, Gary Weber, who was gay. And uh, my mother freaked out. At the time, my family was wealthy. My mother tried to have me committed because she thought that I was a lost soul hanging out with gays, which probably... She thought in her head I was also prostituting myself. <laughs> that was the mentality of many of the parents back then. Yeah. She paid a shitload of money to bring me to this place 
which, thank God, I stayed a week, two weeks, and created such havoc. (laughs) (laughs) Kicking and screaming. No, it wasn't that. It was just that I was put in the out section with people who were with girls, young girls. But you have to understand, there were girls there who were there because uh, their parents had them committed for smoking weed or having an uh, Italian girl who was committed because she had an Irish boyfriend. The guy who owned the place was Italian, and this was such a shady place. It was really, really uh, very well kept. So at night, the boys' section was one side and the girls were on the other, and most of the boys were there because they smoked weed. So we would have these strip shows we know late at night where everybody would open their curtains and we put on like three t-shirts and we'd take one off and then we'd take another off. But I got busted. <laughs> but because my mother paid so much money. And then after two weeks, the guy who owned the place said, oh, well, you know, you have to listen to your mother. You have to go to Italy. You have to get married to the man she tells you to. And I'm sitting there and going, oh, shit. How am I going to get out of this? And then there was a nurse who realized that this place was very um, dodgy. So she passed me a letter that Donna had sent me. Were you actually staying there, Fran? Two weeks, yes. Right, okay. In the out department, which was the ground floor. Right. (laughs) You don't know what was going upstairs. (laughs) And since we were a group of girls, we'd sit at the same table at lunch, and there were tables that were really out to lunch. You know, and sadly, there were also people who who were, like, out there. Uh, And we were young, and we'd make fun of them, you know, and it goes, oh, my God. And I got this letter Donna had written that they were all going to Paris to stay at Carl's house and that I should maybe leave Naples because I was going to Italy and join her. I had my heart set on that, you know, going to Naples and then just disappearing and getting on a train to Paris. Uh, But it never happened because I met my ex-husband. He was very, very cool. We're talking Naples, 1970, no blue jeans, no nothing. The guys would wear suit and tie, you know, young kids. And the thing was, there used to be the bars, but they're not really bars. They were cafes. And the groups with kids would hang out in front of cafes in suit and ties. <laughs> I was vacationing in Naples, and I had made a great group of friends. Of course, I they knew nothing of my New York lifestyle. But did you really stand out in, in terms of the way you, you dressed? No, I did not dress like that. Right. Okay. No, I had to comply with... Tone it down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was fashionable. I remember when I met my... I'm going to call him Ricardo because that's his name. When I met... <laughs> When I met Ricardo, I was wearing a Pucci dress, and I had on my clunky shoes and my short, weird hairdo and a lot of makeup. So you still had a bit of a look going on yeah. there when you met him. Yeah, and I was walking down the street because my girlfriend was in love with Ricardo, and she wanted to meet him. As I was walking there, I see this jaguar, and I see this door that's open, and I see someone who's sitting on the ledge of the car of the, where the seat is, and I see these two biker boots, and I'm like, 
oh my god what who is that <laughs> you know it's not something you see in naples i get around and i see him and she nudges me to that's ricardo and there's this handsome guy you know with sunglasses in the middle of the night a motorcycle jacket and blue jean i just keep on walking and he runs up for the car and comes up to me and he says hello and he has this <laughs> He has this You're little... Like, Hello. No, he goes, ciao, ciao. And I go, ciao. And he you said, oh, you're not, you're not a, a Italian. I said, no, I'm American. And he had this Brian Vega. You know those Brian Vega, they, uh, they're uh, radios that they closed. It's sort of a square box. And then you could open it. And that was his transistor radio. All of a sudden, it starts playing Strangers in the Night. So he's looking at me, and he's going, strangers in the night. And I go, oh, God. <laughs> but he was so cute. And the first thought that came to mind was, I could almost marry this guy. And then it turns out that that night, my best friend realized that she didn't like Ricardo and that she liked his brother. Right. So, yeah. And that was the beginning of our relationship. Then I had to come back to America at one point, and he came to see me, and uh, we decided to get married. We eloped in 1970. My mother didn't believe that we were going to get married. Left the house, came back with the marriage certificate. And because my mother was like an Italian religious woman, this is not valid. You're not married in church. Well, she said, you can't sleep together. So she went out that night to visit friends, and me and Ricardo went down to the basement and made our bedroom. My mother did not come down to the basement for a week. <laughs> Actually, she sent my father down. And he came down and said, can I come down? And I go, oh, what do you think we're doing? God, we're watching television. You know, it was one of those American basements, you know, with uh, the bar and the TV and the and it had a little room with the bed in it. Because he said, I have to come down and do the wash because we had the laundry room was down there, too. And so and they had a week's worth of laundry to do. So he was really upset about that. And that's the beginning. And then after uh, Ricardo came from a very upscale, you know, upstanding family. His um, his stepfather was a developer and very wealthy. And they were very appalled that we were living in Gramercy Park and, you know, at that infamous residential hotel. <laughs> he was, they said, you know, you have a life in Italy. You don't have to be, you know, working in it. I was working at the time. And then it turns out that I got pregnant two months after we got married, which was not in the plan. But back then it was like, oh, I'm pregnant. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> uh, so my mother-in-law and my mother said, well, at this point you need to get married in church. So I was, we were like, well, you want me to marry in church? It's got to be my kind of wedding. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I saw my wedding gown in a Bazaar magazine at the time, and my hat was amazing. It was a beautiful big hat. I was very uh, big hat, empire waist wedding gown, 
because I was pregnant. But it was white, but I had a blue ribbon. <laughs> and I had sandals. And we had it at this amazing beach club. We had a 50-piece orchestra. Oh, wow. Yes. Wow. It was major. Mm. And then we... <laughs> and then I fainted at my uh, on the altar. It was really hot. There was frankincense was so overpowering. And, and of course, I was pregnant, so... I'm nudging Ricardo saying, I think I have to faint. And he's going, no, you don't. And I go, yes, I do. And I <laughs> fell over. The next picture is I'm sitting on a chair, finishing the ceremony. And then I remember we went to lunch at Mr. Chow's. I don't know if you are familiar. I love Mr. Chow's. At the reception, I had my little basket with my mother's very wealthy friends dropping envelopes. <laughs> <laughs> It was cool. And then yeah. I gave birth to Mario that November. Wow. In, were you in Italy, though, when Mario was born? Or? Yes, because we yeah. left. We got married on June 10th, and we left for Italy June 24th. And my father-in-law gave us an apartment in his building because he mm. built it. <laughs> you know, and my brother-in-law gave us a car because he had an international car dealership. It was great living in luxury that way. After, you know, our tiny little apartment. Oh, and by the way, we had a cat and a dog. We had a lot going on. We had a, baby a lot and going a cat on. And a dog. We kept the cat. My mother took the dog. It started off that I had a boutique called Lady Madonna, and I would design clothes for pregnant women because that was my situation. Mm. So when you say you des- design, what did you just um, teach yourself to do it? Well, I've always had this thing for clothes. I'm not a design. I'm really not a designer. I know what I want to do. In Italy at the time, in Naples, I mean, at-home workers were a dime a dozen. Yeah. You could find women who did that for a living because they had children and they worked for a lot of companies at home. So would you, like, sketch something and then give it to a seamstress to... Well, no, like I, for instance, I'd have a shirt, give them the fabric that I wanted it. And then I'd say, well, this needs to be for pregnant women. So it needs to flare out. And that's how it started in very trendy colors and everything. But it was very short lived because no one was interested. (laughs) Right. It was probably too ahead of its time. Yes. So then I decided to convert the shop into a children's wear shop. That didn't work out either because it was very high-end. Very were you weird. making it or were you... No, that I was purchasing a lot of clothes from Paris and closed it down. Then I was visiting a friend downtown and she said, you know, here I am still very American, you have to realize. Mm-hmm. At this point, I had my bell-bottom jeans, I had my clogs. When I was pregnant, I had, you know, my Indian shirts with my hoop earrings, still a lot of makeup. I was the oddity of my apartment building. Right. (laughs) I I remember my neighbor invited me to a Tupperware party. Because they had Tupperware in Italy. Italy, Yes, in 1971. Everybody there had a pleated skirt, a cashmere sweater, and pearls. And I didn't. I had my jeans, my Indian top. And the girl who invited me, uh, she was 10 years older than me. I was 21 and she was 31 and she looked like she was 12. And we became best of friends, even though we were so different. 
And she helped me a lot with my kids because two years later I got pregnant with Nina. But you have to understand, me and Ricardo were living this very fast lane lifestyle. We would go to clubs every night, discos in Naples. We would go to Positano and we were hipsters and we smoked hash. Uh, not, not Again, not a lot, but not me at least. And we hung around with the so-called, they were called Freakatonis which freaksters, basically. <laughs> the one thing that you knew about us that we had long hair and blue jeans, and everybody was wealthy from wealthy families. It was a lot of fun, and it was sort of dangerous. When I was dating Ricardo, they busted us one. They came to the house to see. This is when I just barely knew him. And I'm like, what the fuck are the cops doing in the house? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I remember once going down in Positano and there was the Rolling Stones just sitting there. A lot of groups coming in, you know, and it was very, it wasn't crowded because, again, it was still a very classist time in Italy. The middle class did not have money to do this. And we had a villa outside of Positano and we had an amazing boat, a Riva, you know, those little Riva uh, boats. Capri was across the way. Um, we would always, in Iski, we'd always like, you know, but mainly the hippest place was at the time Positano. Oh, it was amazing. You know, there was a club down called Number number One, and upstairs was a restaurant, and that's where I met my sister-in-law, Jenny. She ran a boutique on top of the club in the restaurant. And then she got involved with my brother-in-law, and we basically had children at the same time. We would be there in our in our bikinis and our shawls with fringe and these huge hats, and we decide to go dancing, and we'd leave our kids up at the restaurant in these baskets, you know, in laundry baskets, and the girls who would run the restaurants would watch our children. You know, we'd pay them. To, to be there, and we go downstairs dancing. <laughs> and then if one of them woke up, we run up, fed them, put them back down, and run back down to the club. <laughs> and the big song at the time, I remember, was American Woman. Uh, I have very good memories. Then a friend of mine was looking for someone to run her boutique. And I said, you know, I'd love to do that. And she looked at me like, I don't think so. And I said, what's the problem? And she said, well, when you go tell your family, you'll find out. (laughs) So uh, we ate with our in-laws who had the penthouse upstairs. We had a garden apartment. And uh, at the table, which was like a mile long, I said, I'd like to go work at this boutique. And my mother-in-law had a, she had a fit. (laughs) And my father-in-law said, you want another boutique? And I said, excuse me? And he said, do you want another boutique? I'll give you a boutique. And so we opened Superstar, which was sold blue jeans and stuff like that. But in the meantime, I was also making like feathered earrings that I would sell in the store. I'd make these little necklaces. You have to understand in Naples, in Italy, there wasn't cost. Costume jewelry was gold-looking earrings, and it wasn't this movement that was sort of already in America. I really didn't know what was going on in America because communications, there was no internet, but I had a friend who would say, oh, you know, they're wearing uh, this and they're wearing that, so I would, in my head, 
imagine yeah. what it might be. I got robbed once. That is like a staple in Italy. You get robbed. Uh, <laughs> you haven't and, lived in Italy unless you've been robbed, right? You know, and then the second time that I got robbed, I said, that's it. I'm closing this shop. And as I was lowering the, the metal gate, this man comes up to me and said, you know, I'm from Fiorucci. Would you be interested in working with us? End of part one. Did Fran go and work for Fiorucci? You'll find out in part two of this trilogy of interviews. If you're listening to this as the episodes are released, the next part will be available in one week's time. Otherwise, go straight to the next episode on your podcast platform. Thank you for listening to In Bed with Neil Moody with my amazing guest, Francesca Sorrenti. You can follow Fran on her Instagram, which is at Francesca Sorrenti underscore. Sorrenti spelt with two R's and one N. The David Sorrenti book is called Argue SKE 1994-1997 and is published by Idea Books, with up-and-coming exhibition dates to be announced. The documentary film about David's life is titled See No Evil and is available on numerous platforms. If you want to get in bed with me again and another of my guests, then you can subscribe to my podcast on all the regular platforms to ensure that you don't miss an episode. There are other episodes, including all of Series 1, already available to listen to straight away. Thanks for listening.